Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from the International Culinary Center, and today on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, we have a very special guest who actually has come a very long way to be on the, well, I don't think he came to be on the show, he actually came for Le Fooding that's going to take place in New York this weekend, but um, a very unique chef. Daniel Rose is an American from Chicago who um, went to Paris, went to France, and has probably uh, a dream restaurant that a lot of American chefs dream about. He's got a small, incredibly successful restaurant in Paris, France. (laughs) Welcome, Daniel, and the question of the moment is how did you do it? But first, (laughs) I think that we're gonna have a, a little bit of time to get there, so welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. How do you like New York? I love New York City. Really? Uh, I don't get to come here very often, but um, it's such a difference from Paris. I mean, ma- I mean, a lot of things are different, but the rhythm is much... Uh, well, it's actually quite frightening, because Paris shuts down at about 9.30 at night and wakes up again at about 9.30. So there's 12 hours of silence, but here there's, there's, it doesn't seem to stop. No, it's the city that never sleeps, yeah. right? And that's, yeah, and it really is quite overwhelming. And there's always interesting people doing interesting things. There's music, there's theater, there's... But may, I, I don't have a very good perspective because when everyone says it's a dream to live in Paris and, all, and, and I dream of living in New York City. Do so, you? Sure, yeah. Oh. But it always looks like that, I mean, from far away. That's right. Well, so how many years have you lived in Paris or uh, in France? Right? I have been living in... And I arrived in Paris in, in August of 1998, so it's 14, 14 years and 22 days and 16 hours. Okay, <laughs> all right. I like precision there. Um, so let, let's, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Chicago, outside of Chicago, the northern suburbs, in a, in a, in a suburb called Wilmette, um, which lots of people know because it's a very famous high school. Uh, I went to the same high school as Charlie Trotter, apparently. People, oh, people, you know Charlie? I don't know him, no. But, oh, uh, he's a great guy. We, we've never met. Oh. Um, but uh, I grew up uh, in a very pretty, quiet, family-oriented... How was the food in the house? Great. My mother is an, is an excellent cook, although she's, I think as soon as all the kids left, she decided that she would go out to restaurants more than she would cook. But... The best restaurant in Chicago is at my mother's house. It's maybe the hardest reservation to get. What kind of food does she cook? I think there was a period where she was making a different meal every night for, you know, every night except uh, except a few holidays. Um, Did you work with her? Did you cook with her? uh, I don't think... 
not actively, but it definitely, it definitely wore off. I also have a memory of, um, of a Chinese nanny named Jia Ling that used to make me these crazy Chinese omelets every time my mother would make something I didn't want to eat. Uh, Tell me about the omelet. It was, it, was it was like a very flat. It was, it was a few eggs beaten with, uh, I think there must have been sugar and salt and probably some, some sauce soy in sauce? it. Yeah, soy sauce or something. And it was kind of greasy and fried. It was very delicious. And it was very thin. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a French omelet. It wasn't really an omelet. It was sort of like a kind of thin a egg lot, a lot crepe. More. Yeah, a lot more oil in the pan. Totally. It was delicious. It got a little mm, crunchy. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so when did you get, did you, when you uh, went to school, what were you dreaming of being? Did you always have a dream to be a chef? Or? No, I went to school uh, to study philosophy and history of mathematics first. And then I think I cooked a little on the side. I remember... Um, I remember cooking for a girlfriend once and I went to the market and I bought tomatoes and onions and I had never actually done anything before and a piece of salmon or something and I mixed it all together and I remember watching my mom add like a little vinegar and a little sugar and all this and apparently I had made something that resembled ketchup by the time I was done <laughs> but there was a desire to cook but I had no I had no I mean, other than the desire. I had no, 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 I thought... Where were you studying philosophy and mathematics? That's kind of scary. First I was in uh, St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh my God, that one where you studied the classics? Yeah, so oh, I studied that cool? ancient Greek and... Yeah, it was very cool. So cool, in fact, that after two years of isolation in the desert of Santa Fe, I decided I needed to move far away. So I moved to Paris. Oh, so anyway, tell me a little more about St. John's mm. and for people who don't know it and how different it is as a college. So... Uh, it's a, I think I went there because there was no, were no grades, and that was the most attractive part to me. I mean, I was you know, 18, and I just was looking for the easiest way to get through school, or so I thought. But it turned out that it wasn't easy. Um, and it, it, essentially, everybody studies the same thing at the same time. And so the freshmen all enter school, and everybody reads uh, the first chapter of, of the Iliad, and then starts... Uh, in Greek, in English, and then during the day, you'd study enough Greek to start doing translations. And then I remember very well. I think the most, one of the most memorable moments, maybe in, maybe in my entire life, even even including all of the cooking things, was uh, a seven foot tall German woman who was teaching mathematics, uh, Euclidean geometry. And the first day of class, there was a big blackboard. She was, her name was Nancy Buchenauer. She was very tall and quite eccentric. And she, she took a line of chalk and drew it across the, the board. And she said, now what is this? And there was a bunch of like eight very nervous 18-year-old kids who thought they knew a lot staring at this line across the chalkboard. And everyone was, you know, what is this? And she says, this is a piece of, the li- this is a, piece of a line that's the size of the universe. And I think at that point I was like, I like this place. <laughs> I didn't know why. <laughs> I didn't know why, but I was moved by that moment. And so there were lots of interesting, really what essentially what it is, while you're studying Euclidean geometry and reading the Iliad and translating the Bible, for example, from Greek to English, um, it really isn't so much about the substance of what you're doing, but the, the process. So you're, you're really gaining lots of tools for learning. And this is, this is probably the most... I mean, if people say, what's the, most, what's the reason you became a cook? It really was because of, because of that, because cooking is a way of continuing that learning process all the time. 
and so it never you know people say that a lot but this is really the this is it's it's provided a, a gateway into all sorts of different things whether it's for me it was France cooking in general um, in the same way that I went back and studied ancient Greek which everyone had studied for a very long time already I studied the Finzeum you know so instead of going into nuclear science I was looking at at old ideas about how the universe was put together and instead of uh, taking new chemicals and mixing something new I'm looking at you know parsley tarragon chervil it's in some ways those classic things are still uncharted territory and so I, th I really see a very deep link between uh, the studying at St. John's the, the, the process of learning and my current I mean I guess my job but my career my life in, in some ways so when did the food bulb go off? So I was always very hungry, I think. Was <laughs> no, <laughs> in I mean, the desert. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I was always, into, I was always interested in eating. Um, but that was, part of our, that was part of our family life. And this was, you know, you go on vacation, you go somewhere where there's something that's good to eat as well. You go to Mexico or you go somewhere else. Um, it was always very important. Uh, I think the food, I remember trying to make an apple pie when I was at St. John's College. I think for the same girlfriend, actually. And I made the, I made the dough, I followed the recipe, and it was quite thick. Mm. And of course, I didn't pre-bake it because I hadn't thought of that. Mm. I didn't read carefully enough the instructions because I was mm -hmm. too excited to do it. Mm. Um, so I made the dough and I stuck it in the, in the tart shell and I put the, the raw apples on top. And of course, I made a big mess. Big gooey, yeah. yeah, big gooey <laughs> thing that wasn't particularly <laughs> delicious. Um, and it didn't smell anything like what I thought it was going to smell like. But, um, and I don't even think we ate it. In fact, I think I was so ashamed of it, I, I put it right in the trash. Is this with the, the salmon and the vegetables? This was, this was, so the, the, the apple pie happened at St. John's, and then in the middle of St. John's, I transferred to Paris because I thought that I wanted to, that it was interesting to have this insulator, insulated learning experience, but that I needed to be complemented by going out in the world. I had never stepped foot in France. I had never... What, what appealed about France? Um, I honestly thought that I mean, I was 19, so put this in some perspective. <laughs> but uh, I honestly thought that all of the girls in France wore only suspenders. I think that I had this, I, I was really... Suspenders? Yeah. I, was, I really thought that, I had seen a movie once when I was a kid that, you know... <laughs> were they wearing anything other than the No, suspenders? I think in the movie they were wearing suspenders and they were speaking French. And I thought, that looks like a place I'd like to go. You know, there's a place in France where the naked ladies dance and there's yeah, a hole in yeah, the wall. Yeah, I think it's called the Crazy Horse. <laughs> I've never been there actually so I really it was really about mythology of France so it was what did I know about France it was the Eiffel Tower and pretty girls and I thought they all rode around on bicycles with baguettes I mean I that's really that's what you get for studying the classics quite <laughs> frankly you don't know what the moderns are really doing. I really didn't I never made it to the French curriculum because I was too busy studying Greek but I really just it was really just to sort of it was a you know, we, we fantasize about what cooking is like in Lyon, for example, exactly. about the mythology of cooking in Lyon. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. I mean, I just sort of went, and what happened was it turned out that what I really found was something that was obviously much more, uh, there was much more substance than just a bunch of pretty girls, and it mm -hmm. turns out there's lots of pretty girls in France, too. But so you transferred to the American University? I transferred to the American University yeah. of Paris. Yeah. Of Paris. And, and what was that like after St. John's? It was wonderful because it was the opposite of, of this insular, very, um, very... I mean, basically, when you, every time you ask a question at St. John's College, you're asking a question that is so 
big that you are never going to get an answer. And so it can be very, when you're like 19... Like the line. Like, like, think about the line the size of the universe across the chalkboard. I mean, you could spend a hundred years thinking about that mm-hmm. in all sorts of different ways, mm-hmm. which is tremendously exciting, but at the same time, it's a little bit, it's a little bit daunting. Mm-hmm. So I think I needed some sort of real curriculum where it was like, this is art history, and this is the Louvre, and this is what happened, you know, and the Louvre was built in, by Francois I, and this, and then it was added on. To, so I, I moved from something that was sort of... I mean, it's, a, it's like anything you learn. You have to begin with... It, I think I jumped right into the big questions, but because I didn't know anything about uh, the details, it was hard to form any real... To have any real direction. So it's yeah, like yeah. cooking. You know, people yeah. say, I want to be a chef, but they don't know about how to hold a knife or something like that. And what you, uh, So uh, what was the culture of France compared to America? We're, get, we're all getting the, to get know you a little better, and it's obvious that you're an intellectual and have a lot of brain power. And um, France is known or prides itself on its intellectual you know, coteries and people talking. So did you find a huge uh, cultural shift going, coming from the Midwest, New Mexico, going to a very intellectual college, and then going to Paris? What, what kind of seismic cultural schism was there between the States and, the, and France? I think my first two years in, in Paris were at the American University of Paris, so I wasn't quite in France yet. It was a kind of an airlock. But I was with lots of people from around the world. So I was in school with people from uh, Iran, from Lebanon, from Libya, from Egypt, from Australia, from Colombia. Um, so it was a really, it was a, quite an awakening to the way in which, I mean, you can drive 22 hours in the United States and still not get to the end. Uh, in Europe, you drive 22 hours and you're, you know, you've gone three through countries. three countries and maybe more and, yeah. and, and six different languages. Mm. So um, I think it was a real, there was a real uh, emphasis on education uh, that was, like here where we, we, we were geared to, we were engineered to go to college and stuff, but we weren't really engineered to be to be educated in a way. It's just, I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, and it's a subtle difference. I think they look difference. at college as the prelude to getting a job. Yes. And is they, there is something about uh, European universities that you're going there to be educated. Yeah. This is also part of a long process that, that, that's something that, I mean, the French, the French are known for that and the Americans adopted, adopted it in some way. The American democracy works because, uh, because we pride ourselves on being able to create liberally educated young people who can make decisions about... And who, lots of them. It's yeah, not an elitist yeah. uh, pursuit. Um, but it's been sort of... It's been morphed into a, a very career-oriented... Mm. Um, uh, you know, it's vehicle. college is a date... Yeah. yeah, it's a vehicle for getting a job, for making yeah. sure your life is you know full of the things you want it to be full of. So now you're at the university and you were there. Did you finish your degree? I did. It, it took me a little longer than I had thought. I, I tried to... I sort of dropped out after the first year. Uh, I tried to join the French Foreign Legion. Did you really? Yes. What was that like? Uh, it lasted about an hour. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I think they realized quickly that 
that I was not a good candidate for, for being in the military, and certainly not in the, in, in the French Foreign Legion, which was, at the time, this was 1998, so it was full of... Essentially, I was in a room with a bunch of ex-Serb uh, mercenaries who had just spent a lot of years killing lots of people, uh, and I think that they thought they were probably better candidates than this <laughs> kid who was... Is there an about. office in Paris where you it's go? It's just outside of Paris. It's at Fort Nogent, and you can take the train there. I showed up in my Birkenstocks and with my big smile and was like... Without the girlfriend. <laughs> without the girlfriend. I went actually with a Colombian friend of mine who, who to this day, who he was kind of egging me on. He's like, you should... You go. <laughs> it was really very silly. What was appealing about the French Foreign Legion? Because it is, you know, cutthroat killers. It, it is cutthroat killers, but I think that there's a. Are you a cutthroat killer? Uh, no. I don't <laughs> think. You're glad to well, hear it. <laughs> yeah. With the animals, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and even even then, maybe less. But uh, no, I think there was this desire for a total a total immersion into something with a real concrete um, discipline. discipline kind of an I mean the this notion of loyalty uh, this abstraction from uh, this sort of adopted patriotism I mean if you the, the force of the French Foreign Legion may or may not be how well they fight but it really is about how how they've just, just decided that this is their this is what their allegiance is. Mm. And it's very powerful, I think. I mean, we have opportunities to make... How many times in, the, in your life do you, are you in a position to make a decision about that's as strong as something like that, as saying, deciding, I'm going to be a soldier? I'm, you know, this is... This is well, you could have joined the American Army. And I, I thought about that, too. I thought about that, too. Um, that I think that I was looking for what, some kind of decision, some kind of creating some kind of moment like that in life that was very decisive. And I don't, I mean, it was a bit of mythology too. I thought, oh, the French Foreign Legion, I'm going to go out to the desert and roast lambs over the fire. And I guess I was still dreaming about <laughs> food, food, actually. <laughs> um, so they rejected you. They rejected me very quickly, like within an hour. Oh, but that's really important I, to put on your resume. I mean, not, not many people have been rejected by the French Foreign Legion. I think it's easy to be rejected by the French Foreign <laughs> it's Legion. It's easy, but not many yeah. people go no, for nobody, it. Again, nobody no. went for it, yeah. <laughs> and I went back to school, and then I eventually I graduated. And, um, uh, I thought, what am I going to do now? And, and I was interested in, I had spent two years in Paris, and I hadn't, very, I hadn't been a very good student of French, and I thought, I've been in Paris for two years, and I don't speak French, and if, I really, if I'm interested in making these decisions where, that are sort of intense, then there's no way that I can go back to the States and be like, ah, yeah, I lived in France for two years, but not have any real, any real roots not have learned the language, not have understood the culture. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that it's going to take 30 years before I really start to understand some of these things, so that's why mm-hmm. I'm still there. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, what's the best way to, to, to learn more about France? Well, it's one, to get out of Paris, and then to do something that is essentially French, which Mission. is to learn about restaurants. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, there is something that all the restaurants in New York City today function more or less, even the Chinese restaurants are essentially French restaurants. Mm-hmm. The technique is different, of course, but they're the way they're constructed, the way they're the way the the way the even the way the customer interacts with them is very French. It was born during the Revolution. There's a, a lot of interesting social uh, aspects to it, and so I wanted to learn about France in order to learn about France globally. I needed to 
learn about something very specific, and so it was restaurants. And so how did you do that? So I went to Lyon, because somebody told me that Paul Bocuse was the Pope of French cooking, and I believed them, and I went to Lyon and enrolled in the, the, the Institut Bocuse. And how was that? That was excellent. It was a, a real awakening, because I think that the... I was a very eager student, and I already had a degree in, you know, too many years of college. So I was at once the ideal candidate to learn French cooking because I had all these tools about how to learn. But at the same time, I wasn't the best candidate for the school because I was a little too... I couldn't sit still, really. And I went... Were you demanding of your teachers? I was demanding of my teachers. I think I was probably slightly provocative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had to wear uniforms and stuff like this. And even though I had this desire to... I think I couldn't fathom wearing a cooking school uniform when a year before I had been considering wearing a uniform for the French, for foreign, the French foreign Legion. But no, you're in cooking school and it's a chef's uniform. It's a chef's uniform, a but outside, outside of the school we had to wear uh, these polyester suits with a red tie. and no. a Yeah, absolutely. I still have it, actually. Uh, I don't think it fits. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had to wear the, and then there was things about how you know your haircut had to be a certain way, and uh, that, that wasn't really that big of a deal. But I think the first day of school, I went to the directrice and I said, you know, here I am. You know, school is from nine in the morning until six at night, and so from from seven thirty until one in the morning, I intend to go work in a restaurant, and even if it's in doing the dishes. And she says, oh no 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 no, we don't do that here. And I thought. That's the strangest thing in the world. If we had been in New York City and some eager young student came to you and said, I really want to, you know, I really want to get in and I don't care if I'm, you know, peeling, uh, you know, artichokes with a toothpick or whatever. No, whatever. most of our students at ICC do that. Yeah. yeah. And so. there was a, a very, there was a bit of, I thought, this is strange. Mm. I mean, here you have all this energy from all these students that are really eager to learn stuff and there are some obstacles in the way of, of doing it. But it was a really wonderful place, and we had Meilleur de France as, as... It was my first introduction to the Meilleur de France, which was... Well, we're going to get into that. For, mm-hmm. Now we're going to take a little break, okay. and we're going to come right back, and we're going to get into how your cooking career started. So, hold on. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Well, hello. You're listening to Chef's Story, and this is Dorothy Can Hamilton. And today, my chef is uh, Chef Daniel Rose of Spring Restaurant in Paris, a young American chef who has found him his way to Paris and has taken them by storm. We were right in the middle of his story, and you were just telling us about being at the Institut Paul Bocuse, 
in Lyon and studying. And uh, so when you graduated from there, you were there for a I year? Didn't, I didn't graduate. Oh. Graduate. I, I uh, spent a year there, and then I went on my first internship, like you do between school years. Right. And uh, at the, it, was, it was 2001, and so just at the, during the break, uh, September 11th happened. Uh, and I decided that instead of going back to school, uh, I would just stay. I asked the chef that I was working with, who was uh, a mayor de France in Brittany, uh, who I had a very privileged relationship with, and it was a really excellent place. And he basically had proposed to me to stay on instead of going back to Explain school. Explain to people what a mayor de France is. A mayor de France is somebody that's awarded a... Uh, sort of like an honorary degree uh, from the French government that is a recognition of your level of the quality of the, your work. And it's a competition. And so there could be, at any one time... It's not whoever wins the competition, it's whoever meets the qualifications of, of being a maillot de France. And it can be in anything. It can be in cooking, it can be in chair making, it can be in basket weaving, it can be in boat building, uh, chocolate making, pastry. It, it covers a lot of different things. In knitting, I think there's even a knitting maillot de France. Really? And the, the idea is that you, they really take into account uh, a lot of different criteria. So it's once your technical skills... But it's also your ability to teach others. Uh, it's really the, the... Well, I've met a lot of three-star Michelin chefs, for example, who are very good at what they do. Uh, there's nothing that, except for their own ambition, um, and even outside of the quality of the restaurant, they're linked by their ambition. Uh, the Moyen Ouvre de France is linked really by... And uh, those, that, those that qualify are really linked by a very... Uh, something quite different, which is really simply the quality of their work. Some of them have restaurants that I found not particularly good, but they themselves have this award, and they are just, it's the most... It's the most prestigious, I, I think. For me, it's the most yeah. prestigious, yeah. I Both mean, uh, Andre Soltner, which are, you know, everyone in the United States knows of the mm-hmm. legendary Lutece, and Jacques Torres um, is actually the youngest uh, patissier, uh, pastry chef to, to win it at the time. So um, we have a few that are living here in this state. And they really are. I mean, I'm, I'm just in awe, you know, I mean, if, uh, of, of, their their, of the quality of their work. And yeah. so the, the opportunity for me to work alongside one who said it was a small restaurant in Brittany and there were 24 seats and he made a unique menu every night. Um, and he would come in with a case of artichokes and say, okay, you don't know anything about artichokes, so here you go. And then the next day he say, you've never seen this kind of... Uh, uh, crustacean before, so here you go. And so he was really. And he was actively, your personal tutor. He was my personal tutor, and he taught me things that that today I find myself telling interns in my own restaurant and pinching myself, going, <laughs> "Like this is unbelievable. This is, doesn't make any sense." Everything I learn, uh, and I'm not talking about recipes because recipes can be learned many different ways, but about the quality of work about the relationship with the, with the customer, about your own... He told me that someday, uh, in, in a, at five in the morning, after maybe a kind of a drunken romp around this small town together, there was nothing to do, uh, he, over a baguette that came out of the, the boulangerie oven from, this, from his buddy who owned the boulangerie next door, uh, with this beautiful 
butter from Brittany on this hot baguette. He said that, he said two things. He said, if I could, I would serve my customers bread and butter because this is the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. And, in, and just after that, he said, someday you will find yourself alone. Your wife will leave you. You will be all alone. And you'll be left with nothing but your own métier. Meaning your own craft. Yeah. And he was, he was right on both those counts, it turned, <laughs> turned out. Oh, my. But, and so if, from that, yeah, I mean, it was like, I was like, and, and then, of course, I learned this great recipe for creme citron and a great recipe for almond puree and a, a kind of a, a vision uh, about cooking that really was open enough so that it was, it was so wide open, in fact, that it created, uh, and this is 12, 10 or 12 years later, um, enough material for a lifetime's worth of work. And that is pretty... How long did you stay with him? About a year and a half. And then he looked at me one day and he said, I really think it's time that you go somewhere else. And he wasn't firing me. No, he chefs was, do that in France. He was promoting yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And where did you go? I ended up um, going to the south of France, near Avignon, uh, to one of his buddies who had a very different restaurant, a one Michelin star restaurant uh, that was very busy in the summer and less busy in the winter. Uh, and of course, we were very far from Brittany because we were, you know, in Brittany it was all about about the ocean and uh, kind of rustic Celtic culture. And then, of course, in, outside of Avignon, we were, it was all about olives and, and, and strong, and Syrah and, and lambs and different, you know, the, 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 the style had changed. Mm. Uh, and also the type of business that this, this other miss, chef was. Did you miss the first chef? Or were you excited by no, this new landscape? I was excited by the new landscape, and I never was really very far away from him because he had given me all the stuff that I could take with me. Hmm. So I never felt like I was... I never missed it because he had opened up the world in some way. So how long did it take for you to uh, get to the point where you felt you could open your own place? Well, I think lots of young cooks... You're never really ready to open your own place the only thing that makes you ready for it is when you decide to do it. You know, there are lots of, when are you ready? Today, kids come to me and they say, I want to open my own restaurant. And I think, damn, if I was in your position, I would keep, I would still be a stagiaire. I want to go work for Dan, uh, Daniel Hum at, at 11 Madison. I think I could, you know, I could spend a year there and, and learn all sorts of stuff. I want to go see what uh, Alfred Portal does in, in somewhere else. And I want to go work for Gilles Robuchon. It's, you know, there's just a point at which you decide that you're going to open a restaurant. I think I, think I thought that I was quite ready for it early. Um, I also knew when I decided that I was going to open a restaurant. I was working at the Hotel Maurice. Uh, Who's the chef there? Yannick? Uh, Yannick Aleno. Yeah. So I had just come back to France from a year in Guatemala. Oh, wait, first, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I know, so where did you, how did so, you get to Guatemala? So I worked, in, I worked in Avignon, and all this time I had no working papers. So uh, this is, this is a, I have a first world you know, problem, which at this point was that I had no working papers. Big deal. Um, I obviously wasn't suffering. And, and yes, you can apply the word clandestine to my experience, but this is not... This is not that interesting. But I just, they, they just, you know, would pay me in cash, and I couldn't really have any responsibilities, so I thought, I'm going to go back, to, it was 2003, I'm going to go back to the United States and see if I can work in a, in a restaurant. 
and I came to I went to Chicago and I spent a day at True and a day at uh, maybe two days at uh, North Pond and I saw lots of neat things and I thought oh this is great but I realized that what I liked about cooking wasn't the cooking it was the all the other things that I was learning and I felt like by go by entering in there that those experiences at least on a superficial level weren't as weren't as enriching so I answered an ad in the newspaper for this hotel in Guatemala that was a very chic little place people used to fly in from Guatemala City by helicopter and it was in some ways more French than France uh, they really were picking asparagus in the morning and the strawberries were re- very local and they had all these beautiful little flowers and very exotic fruits and stuff and it was quite a privileged environment I had my first I was the, were chef. You the chef I there? was the chef oh, yeah. that was your first that was my chef. first chef job and it was pretty it was great it was really wonderful I had a kitchen full of well, the guy who was my sous chef was about 45 years old. And he one day showed me a picture of his family. And he gave me the picture and there were seven kids in it. And then he told me that actually there are so many children, he has so many children, that he needed to take two pictures. And he showed me another picture with another seven children. The guy had 14 children. We spoke a little bit of Spanish. We spoke a little bit of Quiche. And we, I learned to communicate uh, I think in the beginning it was a rather intense relationship we all had, but in the end we really understood each other. And the, what we understood all together was, in the end, instead of saying do it like this and do it like that, it was I would show them one way and then show them another way, and then they would say, ah, that one's prettier than this one. And then they would make the prettier one. It was incredibly, it was incredibly exciting. But How long at, were you there? A year. Okay. And so, yeah. wait, we're going to take another break. <laughs> and when we come back, I hope you're going we'll to say you got to Paris. Yeah. We'll get into uh, spring. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my chef uh, is Daniel Rose, who the, the owner uh, and executive chef of Spring in Paris, one of the most feted and probably one of the hardest restaurants to get into in, in Paris. And we've just kind of tiptoed through his uh, really uh, interesting life, and uh, we're get, I guess we're getting close to your return to Paris and opening your restaurant there. How did that how did that happen? How did spring come about? So I moved back from Guatemala to Paris. I got married. Uh, so finally I had working papers. Not to the then. girlfriend you were making the bed. No, no, no. She, 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 okay. she, she, she made a good move and ducked out a long time before that. She was, yeah. Uh, and uh, I married my a gir- a French woman that I, that I was in love with. And um, I started working at the Hotel Maurice because he knew the chef that I worked for in Avignon and I, I was in September or late August of 2004 they were working very hard to get either they had just gotten it or they were working very hard to get the third Michelin star it was an interesting environment and it was um, it was a little it was pretty pretty crazy um, but I learned a lot and then after about three months of that I thought I think it's time for me to... I didn't see myself starting out as a demi-chef de partie and then becoming a chef de partie and then becoming a sous-chef in this environment. I thought that I needed to do my own thing. So 
I quit my job at the Hotel Maurice. I'm sure they didn't miss me. <laughs> uh, in fact, the chef, uh, we had a very poignant moment. I remember where the chef apologized to me because he knew that the difficulty in trying to get a third Michelin star meant that he couldn't have a relationship with his cooks that he, the relationship with his cooks that he really wanted. It was a, a very poignant moment and very brief, but it was like, I'm going to get three Michelin stars and there's no room to, and I need guys that already know how to do this very well, there's no room to, to educate others, at least at this point. Now I think it's quite different. But, so I left and I thought, okay, now I'm going to open a restaurant. But I really didn't have that much experience. And so I started thinking about what kind of restaurant I could open. How could I get the best quality for the customer? You know, how could I make something that would be good? And I realized that would have to be very, very small. And so I started looking around for places, and it turned out that there was a lot of things I needed to learn. So in between time, I started selling books for a German editor uh, in Paris because of my art history background. And it gave me enough time to... Cooking and trying to open a restaurant are... are trying to invent a restaurant, at least in your own mind, takes a lot of energy. So I needed free time in order to do that. So getting a regular job was the best way to do that. And it, I don't remember, it was about nine months or so. It, it seemed like a long time at the time, but now it, it doesn't even appear on the radar. Uh, and I found this teeny tiny little place in the ninth that was 26 square meters. That was a restaurant called Le Coup de Fouet. Uh, the, the, the whip of the whisk. And it, and it was owned by this guy that was half American and half French. And it was like, I walked in and it was so small that I thought, I can do something in here. Like, I, this, is, this is it. And I, and I did three months of renovation on 26 square meters. I gutted the place. I installed an open kitchen. Personally uh, working on it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't do yeah. all the stuff that requires actual skill, but mm-hmm. I was there all the time. And I, we took off the front of the facade and put up this glass these glass doors um, and that was the first restaurant spring and on the 13th of October uh, I had this business plan which was if at least eight people come to the restaurant a day I could I could survive Wow! and the first day I opened the door and um, two people came I didn't invite anyone or anything and then they said oh uh, can our friends come on Friday and they made reservations for their friend on Friday and then for two days there was no one in the restaurant and then on Friday there were four and then the next week there was Eight, and then there was 12 and then there was 16 the restaurant was full and I couldn't turn tables because I was the only person cooking and doing the dishes and, and writing out the notes for everyone after and you know I was basically a one, it was a one man show and then you, you don't mean washing the dishes I mean washing the dishes there was nobody else working in the restaurant except for me it was and I was making a new menu in Who the morning was serving the plate I was it was yeah. a really the place was no bigger than the room we're sitting in it was very teeny tiny Wow. And on the 2nd of, Octo- of November, Emmanuel Rubin from the Figaro apparently had been there a week before, and he wrote this article, which, to di- which today was probably the most poignant thing that was ever said, the most important thing that was ever said about this restaurant. And he wasn't talking about the food, but he said, this restaurant is, you know, I like it and it's tasty and stuff, but this restaurant isn't... Uh, um, a restaurant that resembles life. And I thought, that's pretty heavy duty. Um, and now that I look back, I see that the attraction to the restaurant wasn't necessarily the food, although we weren't making anything that was bad. 
Uh, we, I. <laughs> I'd love to make that. I'd like to give somebody else that responsibility. But I was all by myself. Um, and it was a restaurant that reaffirmed life in some way. It was, it was an act What, what of, did he mean by that? And what do you take from that? Meaning that what you want when you go to a restaurant... Well, this was 2006. There was a bistronomy movement that was beginning. There was Yves Camdebord at the Regalade. Uh, but there really wasn't this move... Like, we had the same suppliers as the Hotel Maurice. I served the same pigeon that I learned to make at the Hotel Maurice. Um, in a completely different environment. And the menu was like 36 euros or something. And I would go in the morning and go shopping and put it all on my scooter and then come back and I had no idea what so I was doing. It was like giving make. a dinner party every it's night. It's like giving a dinner party, yeah. It, and just like people at a dinner party, I really hoped that people wouldn't stay for coffee because I was so exhausted <laughs> at the end of the day and I had to think about what I was going to make the next day. And for me, it was and a real... And you made money at this restaurant? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I haven't stopped to count, but... Uh, well, you no know, well, evicted you from your apartment. Well, so you no, no. Uh, so this restaurant was... The rent was 600 euros a month. I invested 140,000 euros into it. I sold it for 80,000, which sounds like a loss, except that through another maneuver, I leveraged the success and the clientele that I had at this old restaurant to put it into the new restaurant, Spring. So if you want to... So while I'm describing this process of not counting the money, I was well aware that I was... That on paper, at least, I was creating... It was really a very successful business proposition. Mm -hmm. But it's a bit like a lemonade stand. I mean... If you, if you buy 50 euros worth of lemons and sell 150, this is a very successful business. It's just not enough volume to actually be of any So when the first the restaurant was named Spring? The first the restaurant was yeah. named How'd Spring. How did you come up with a name? Uh, I had another name for a restaurant that I, I don't want to say because it was really kind of dumb. And then there was this moment where I was trying to think of a name that, didn't, that, that had many different possibilities. And so I thought, there was, the same reason why I called it Spring was the same reason why Emmanuel Rubin said that it was a restaurant that resembled life. Because it was about, it wasn't about restauranting, it was about sort of doing something and saying, you know, here we are. And there so was, was a wellspring as opposed to the season. It was, it was, uh it was something of the season. I mean, I've never met anyone in the world that on the, around you know, late March after the winter walks outside and takes a whiff of the air and the ground thawing. I mean, here in New York, it must, it's like that as well, like it was in Chicago, and says, oh, f- can I, I can swear on this? Yeah. Oh, shit, the, the spring is coming. Nobody, ever has, nobody has ever said that. <laughs> they do say it about winter. They do say it about winter. And then there was this idea of, a, of a, you know, spring water, a kind of a, a very clean source mm. and the beginning of something. And then there was this kind of, some guy brought me the, a card the other day. He actually makes springs in a factory outside of Chicago. There was this kind of, I was this bouncy kid that didn't really, a spring is, is, is all potential energy, right? It's something that gets squished and then it's uncontrollable. It, it gets squished and then it bounces in any direction that it, it and that's exactly what the, I had no vision about what was going to happen. It's I that just infinite to line coiled. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was it was something like that, yeah. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I just went and did it. And then that led to a second restaurant spring where we are now, which is a much different thing. There's 20 people working there. Uh we have uh a huge the wine cellar we have is as big as the first spring restaurant. There's uh I think 20 people working and 14 different nationalities working there. Um What gives you the most joy today in that restaurant? 
gives me the most joy today is watching other people take take the same pleasure that I got when I did my work before. So watching people, essentially what I did was just say, okay, I can't do this all by myself. And now you do it. And this is the reason why I do it is because by nature, uh, this is what gives me pleasure. And so here you go. And when I see somebody else um, you know, we have lots of... A restaurant is a, a really a series of tools to, to, to make people have a nice time. And whether it's food or service or wine, there's many different opportunities to make people... to connect with people mm-hmm. in some way and to have people say, wow, this is... I feel special or, I, or this is something that... This is, this is the only place in the world where I should be right now. Mm-hmm. Um, now. That doesn't happen with everyone. Some people walk in and go, this is boring or, you know... but. That's well eclipsed by even the one or two people a week or a month that say, this is really, there's something going on here. Uh, and it inspires me. Or, I mean, what is, a, what is an excellent restaurant? The excellent, do you remember the meal you had when you proposed to somebody for marriage? No. You remember feeling like you were in love. That's all. We don't remember the food. We remember a lot of other different things. So I think... Uh, my greatest pleasure today is is watching all these other people who've said, oh, I want to do like Danny Rose does. And it's not a, exactly about how I cook, although it might be sometimes, but it's about how all those little details put together uh, um, can be very satisfying to people. And it's not just about having dinner. So, so unfortunately, we're kind of winding down because I'd like to open another frontiers about food, actually. We haven't talked about <laughs> food. I'm hungry, but, about Yeah, <laughs> but um, I hope um, when I come to Paris, I can interview you again and we can have part two to this. Um, how do the other French chefs uh, view you, especially when Figaro's, you know, jumping up and down? So, in 2008, there was an article in the Figaro, which was, this was now two years later, that listed the most difficult reservations to get in Paris. And so it started with uh, the Pré-Catelan, and then... Uh, Le Table Joël Robuchon, one month for reservations, and then it, it went through Pascal Barbeau at Las Trance and Pierre Gagnier, and then at the top of the list was Spring Restaurant. <laughs> and I thought, now it had nothing to do with the quality of, of the food we were making. It, it did mark a moment in Parisian food, not history, because that's too heavy duty, but a moment that was saying, you know, what? In Parisian restaurant history, absolutely. Maybe, maybe. But it was a really, I was like, I was giggling the whole day. I thought, this is incredible. And even though I was in the same list with all of these other chefs, today we're, we are more well-known in New York City than we are in Paris. So I still have chefs. I put out an ad for cooks in the three-star Michelin world because, of course, I want their experience and their talent and their capacity for work. Uh, who have never heard of Spring Restaurant because we are completely off the map, which is good and bad. <laughs> but it's we are really very isolated in our. So if you world. go to if you go to eat at Les Restaurants or Pierre Gagnier, does the chef treat you like a chef, like they would a buddy French chef, or do they think you're le Américain? I don't think they have any notion of who you are. Who who I am. 
I don't think they know anything about it. Je ne peux pas le croire. I can't believe it. I really it. don't. I really, I mean, I, yeah, I really don't. I think, I think Pierre Gagnier has, not, has heard about, uh, by the way, I'm a big fan, Pierre. Uh, in fact, <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's, it's a different, I think they see us as part of this world of, you know, buzz and, and little substance and, you know, it's a funny, you know, they're running real big businesses and this is where like little, we're not really, we don't really exist yet in some way. But that's also part of Paris. Okay, uh, can I suggest something? I'd love to do part two with you. <laughs> and I, next time I'm in Paris, there's a couple of things. I'd love to get together with you and Pierre Gagnier and have him on the show. And we'll talk. What's his perception of you? What's your perception mm. of him? And then I'd like to come into the restaurant and maybe talk to some of your French patrons um, and say, what is it about this food? And can you tell he's not... Well, I, I don't know what else, is, but maybe is he an American chef to you or a French chef? And then we're, we're going to actually talk about your food, which we didn't get to today. <laughs> so is that a deal? That's great. Okay, all right. I better start cooking now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Daniel, so much. Welcome to New York. Come back often. Thank you. And um, I hope we can cook together sometime. And uh, I want to thank everybody out uh, in Chef Story World there. This has been an exciting day uh, interviewing Daniel. I want to do a shout-out to my producers, Jack Inslee and Robin Cohen and Heidi Tickle and Joe Sevier. So this is Chef Story signing off. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.